Stay standing and we'll read today's scripture. Sermon scripture is from John 17, 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, open our eyes and ears and hearts now to your word. Your word is true. May we not make it out a lie, not by misrepresenting it, not by twisting it to meet our goals, not by refusing to accept its claims and truth. So Lord, please send your spirit to bring these strong truths to their purposed ends in our lives and in, these, and in this world. These are not abstract facts or claims external and unrelated to our lives and persons. They're meaningless babble from a crazy man. They're a lie or they're the core of our existence. Please make it clear to us which it is. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We are continuing our look through the upper room discourse. There's some, there's some discussion on whether John 17 properly belongs to the upper room discourse, partially because we don't know exactly where this prayer takes place. Does it take place in the upper room before they go out or exactly where? But certainly the, the spirit of the material uh, belongs with the upper room discourse as Jesus is talking to a very imperfect community, right? Uh, people filled with betrayers, deniers, doubters, all of these disciples who are struggling with their own fears, uh, and he is seeking to lead them forward. And as such, you know, Jesus is on his own journey, uh, and, and this is a time where he is crossing from his life on earth through the cross, through the empty tomb, into his life in heaven. And as such, this is kind of a border-crossing prayer. Uh, and what is it that he prays at the border? Even more significantly, and we'll get to the contents of the prayer over the next couple of weeks, who is it that he prays to? You see that there in the, in the first verse that we read in chapter 17. He says, Father... The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And that word Father is just such a, such a significant one. I mean, nowhere in any types of extant prayer before Jesus walked the earth did anyone address God, certainly not the God of the Jews, so personally, so intimately, with such uh, tenderness as Father, Abba. It just didn't happen. 
Uh, but, but Jesus, of course, you know, knew his Father, and he's taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven. You know, this is a, very much the heart of God, and it's something that I think we struggle with. You know, so as we come to this passage, one of the obstacles that we have to overcome is our own heart with regards to prayer to the Father. And I want to share with you just a, a little story. Uh, it comes from a much bigger book called The, the Father's Tale. Uh, and in it, Alexander Graham is a man who is ostensibly searching for his son. His son is uh, sort of gone prodigal, and, and Alexander starts from Canada and makes his way all the way around the world, uh, Germany and Russia, Siberia, China, and then bank, makes his way, America, I think he landed in America, makes his way uh, around the world. And one of the places, he has a, an altercation based on an injustice that he saw, or he got into a fight with a guy. Uh, that was in Russia. And then later on, he finds himself in Siberia where these old Catholic priests, and as a Protestant, he, he felt like he needed to make confession uh, about the incident in Russia. So this is the interchange there. Father Sergius removed an old purple stole from his pocket and placed it around his neck. Alex knelt before him. Alex spoke to him about his moment of rage in Moscow when anger had erupted into hatred, the desire that he had at that time to smash, the desire to kill. Digging deeper, he examined his heart with a new awareness, and he told the priest what he saw. At the core of my being, Alex said, his voice full of sadness, is a fear that God is not really my father. I've believed with my mind that he is all that he says he is, but in my heart I have lived as if it were not so. The wise re priest replied, you describe the human heart well. In the innermost being of each man is a universe. There are stars and empty spaces, spiral galaxies and supernovas, solar systems, alongside terrifying black holes. Why are we so surprised when we discover the darkness alongside the splendid beauty of light? Alex said, but the darkness should not be there. No, it should not be there, but it is. And he who begins to recognize this is able to open the gates to the light that Christ wishes to pour into those dark places. You know, there are so many things as I walk through this passage where I see Jesus and I say, I, I'm not Jesus. And this is one of them. Can identify with Alex, you know, this fear. Does God really love me? Is, is the Father really good? You know, sometimes it has to do with the nature of my prayers. Sometimes it has to do with the circumstances in my life. Sometimes it's my own sort of relationship with my own father. Sometimes it's the way that I father my own children. You know, we're very imperfect in all of these things. But it causes me to wonder, is God really good? And as we walk through this passage today, I, I hope that while we see you know, the stars alongside of the terrifying black holes of our own heart, 
that the stars will shine even brighter and that we will see that God is absolutely the Father that we can depend on. And that as we see this prayer, it's a prayer that we can make our own. So what's the occasion of this cry of Jesus? Well, we've already alluded to it. It's, it's Jesus' hour is upon him. He says that there at the beginning. Father, the, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. We've talked about this uh, last week. Every time that Jesus talks about the hour... What he's talking about is the hour of his death. It's not just this random time. He's talking about a specific event. Remember a couple of weeks ago he talked about, you know, when a woman is giving birth and her hour has come upon her. You know, that hour where she puts her life on the line in order to bring forth new life into the world. That's what Jesus has in mind. He knows that it is the time, the fulfillment of time, the moment that all of history has been moving towards. And he's feeling the weight of the world on his shoulders. I mean, we, we know that from, from this moment as he prays to his father. We see it in Mark chapter 14, which is another one of these prayers that is somewhere between the upper room experience with his disciples and then his trial before Caiaphas and the high priest and Pilate. But in Mark chapter 14, he, he says to them, my, my soul is sorrowful even to death. And then he asks his disciples to pray, remain here and watch. And, and then he goes on and he prays. He, he says again, Abba, Father, you know, Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will be done. Jesus feels very deeply the hour that has come, the moment he feels the weight of the world on his shoulders. And he knows that the disciples are going to feel this as well. Both, you know, you know, at that time as Jesus is taken away from them. He's been saying all these things and they've been troubled. Like, what do you mean you're going away? You know, we've banked our life on you. How do we think about this? He can see it going forward as they make testimony between kings and rulers. And, and always Jesus is pushing them towards prayer. He's saying, ask at that time and words will be given to you. He's saying, watch and pray with me right now lest you be tempted. He's saying about his own activity with regards to Peter. Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you uh, so that when you are uh, restored, restore your brethren as well. And what we see in this is that in our time of need, in the, the hour as it comes upon us, we are invited to turn to the Lord in prayer. In fact, we're, we're, we're compelled. Now, I say that not as any type of finger-wagging you know, we're going to go around and check your prayer life and, you know, see if you've fought. But see it for what it is. I mean, Jesus went to his Father because he knew the love of his Father. You know, when we fail to pray, when, when we neglect prayer, it often betrays this fact that we're really not living like our Father loves us. 
sort of what Alex identified in himself. We, we think either that God is insufficient to meet our needs or that God is uncaring to meet our needs. You know, our, our lack of prayer uh, identifies something within us. And this is just one of those things where I look at this passage and say, you know, I'm not like Jesus. When, when Jesus first came, you know, when he, when he came to his hour, his first instinct was to pray to his Father because he knew that his Father loved him. And incidentally, I, I think as we look at this, you know, one of the things that we can say is, you know, feeling the weight of the world is something that really unifies all of us here. You know, whether you are young or whether you are old, you know, whether you are somewhere in between, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're black, whether you're white, no matter what your circumstance in life is, we, we know what it's like to, to feel that weight of the world. Uh, we, we feel it with diagnoses. You know, we, we feel it relationally as we walk through our lives. We, we feel it as we look into our own hearts and, and we see an insufficiency there. We see you know, that blackness. You know, we, we know what it's like to feel the weight of the world. And, and the invitation here is ask. Ask. One writer puts it this way, he says, when you make this prayer your own, and when you make prayer of this nature your own, you enter into this chapter and you see what happens. You realize that you are invited to come into the heart of the intimate relation between Jesus and the Father, and to have that intimacy happen, so to speak, all around you. That is both what this prayer embodies and also its central subject matter. Such an invitation uh, to know the heart of the Father uh, at our time of greatest need. So that's what the prayer embodies, but it's also its central subject matter. Uh, that is, the heart of the Father is at the heart of this prayer. And that's the second point, the contention of the cry. Now, I struggled. You see, you got the occasion of the cry, the outcome of the cry. I looked for an O there. Um, after the bulletin printed, I came up with offerings, uh, the, the, what Jesus is offering up in the cry. So if you like that better, you can substitute that for content. Either way, we're going to look at what the prayer says. And what the prayer says is it puts its focus on a couple of things. First of all, the earthly work of Jesus. You see that, um, you see that in verse 4 where Jesus says, I've glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, there's a couple of things that strike us in that. What does that mean? Does that mean Jesus is done? He can leave right now? You know, I've, I'm done. I've accomplished it all. Well, that's not right, you know, because we know that Jesus needs to go to the cross. Uh, we know that there is work yet to be done. I think what this passage is referring to is the important work uh, of Jesus's, what we oftentimes uh, term his humiliation, you know, the, the obedience that he has before he gets to the cross. And it's all of his life. 
You know, from the time when he was born, even the fact of his birth, that he became incarnate as God, that he entered into the world as flesh and blood, you know, how he lived out as a child, uh, how he interacted with his parents, how he obeyed them, all of those things, uh, his work as a carpenter. You know, let's never, never miss the fact that Jesus spent more years as a carpenter on this earth than he did as an itinerant preacher. Uh, he, he, he carried out his vocation, you know, his religious life, being a neighbor, all of these things. You know, Jesus was obedient to the will of the Father. You know, even from a very early on, you remember when he went to the temple and uh, they couldn't find him and his parents were worried. They kind of scolded him and said, they finally found him with the scribes and the teachers and they said, didn't you know? that I would be about the will of my Father. I mean, he was so focused on the will of his Father and being obedient to him all along the way. And, and here he comes to this moment, and he says, I've accomplished all of that. I, I've finished it. And there are a couple of things, I think, just by way of application for us to think about. One is this. You know, Jesus didn't do everything as a human. Jesus lived in a very limited place and time, you know, in a very limited space. He interacted with a limited number of people. He, he healed a, a specific group of people. He didn't do everything. I mean, he did some amazing things. And, of course, his, his, his finished work now through the cross and the resurrection expands to all people. But as a human, right, Jesus was limited in terms of what he did. And I think as he prays, and he says, look it, I've finished the work, I've accomplished the work you gave me to do. We can enter into that and we can say, God has given each one of us tasks to do. God has given us each a, a place to fill. God has given us each people to encounter and to be with and to be faithful among. And that to me is, is somewhat encouraging. You know, because sometimes we can see the world, and depending on where we are, I mean, we can get so overwhelmed, so overwhelmed by the world, and we can say, I'll never do it. But even Jesus in his humanity had a finite set of tasks that he did, and he accomplished that. And so, you know, part of the question, now, of course, there's a challenge, you know, there's, there's a comfort in it, but it's not a comfort in the sense that it lets us off the hook. Because you have a lot of people in your lives, and those people are in your lives for a reason. You have a responsibility to care for them well, whether they be your neighbors or your family or your co-workers or whoever they might be. You have a responsibility to steward your funds well. You have a responsibility to everything that God has given you to do it well, right? So he's given us the work. And the other thing that I think is significant about this is Jesus finishes the work, the work that you've given me to do, I have accomplished. Now, I, maybe this is just me, but that was really challenging because Lisa will tell you this, others will tell you this, I'm a way better starter than I am finisher. Uh, you know, the ideas of, you know, going forward, and, and I think we all have, you know, different predilections when it comes to that, uh, but, but Jesus takes on the task 
and he completes the task. There was a faithfulness to what he was moving forward. And specifically, it all has to do with his redemptive mission. So he has an earthly work, but it is flowing into this redemptive mission. Part of that we pick up in verse 3. This is eternal life. Uh, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Did did that strike you as strange? You know, here's Jesus talking about himself in the third person. Why is he doing that? Uh, What does he mean by that? Well, I think part of the answer is Jesus is teaching as he is praying. He's very aware that he's modeling for his disciples both the need to pray and the contents of the prayer. And when he says Jesus Christ, he's being very specific in talking about who he was and what he came to do. Now, Jesus Christ is not his first and his last name. Uh, Jesus was the name that the angels told him, uh, told Mary to give, and, and it has to do with, you know, salvation. He will save his people from their sins. A very common name in, in Hebrew. Uh, but Christ has to do with his title. Uh, It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the chosen one, the anointed one who came to save his people from his sins. And Jesus was aware that his obedience from the very beginning, his accomplishing the task, was leading him to this point where he would indeed save his people as the chosen one, as the Messiah. And he connects that work with his hour. Now again, we've said that the hour always refers to his death, right? Uh, and, when he's, and he's talking about it that way. But what's so fascinating here is that we realize that his death is the culmination of his work. Look at how he phrases things in In verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And then look down in verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, what Jesus is saying here is something, again, you know, my heart doesn't go easily towards prayer My heart doesn't go easily towards this either. But what Jesus is saying here is that his death, his self-emptying of himself, his self-donating of who he is, his death is the work of salvation. His death is the crowning point of his glory. Now glorify yourself. Don't glorify me in the future when I'm raised from the dead, right? But as I go to the cross is the glory of God. And this is what is just so backwards for us in the Western culture. I mean, Western culture, we we have lived by that bumper sticker that was popular back in the 80s that said, the one who dies with the most toys wins. You know, we, 
The way up is the way up. The more that we achieve, the more that we succeed, the more, uh, you know, letters we have behind our name, the more money that we have in our bank account, the more of everything. That is the significant, that is the, uh, that is what shows our significance. But what Jesus is saying here is exactly the opposite, and it's the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is uh, when we give ourselves up, that is when we receive the most. If you want to live, you have to die. Uh, for life to come into the world, you know, death has to happen first. And Jesus sees his whole mission as culminating in the time when he would give up his life for his people. And it wasn't even just his physical life. You know, as we think about Jesus and his cross work, we recognize that it's, it's there that he bears the totality of the sin of the human race, you know, the brokenness of the world that was past and future, the things that we experience. You know, the, the scriptures tell us at one point he became sin. You know, so what Alex was feeling in terms of the own darkness of his heart, multiply that times every person that has ever lived. And, and that was Jesus' moment at that time. He he became the absolute dregs of the dregs, the scum of the earth, in order that he could gain heaven and life for his people. It's why he cried out, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, in order to gain that glory that he had with the Father before the foundations of the world, before the world existed, verse 5, in order to gain that glory, he had to give it up in such a poignant way. Now again, that's such backwards thinking. But there's also a real invitation there. You know, the, the real invitation is, look it, you're trying hard. I know all of you are. You know, you're trying hard in, in, in ways to earn favor with people. You know, sometimes it looks like a nice suit and, you know, a lot of money. Other times it looks like dreadlocks and tattoos. You know, we, we try hard to please the people that we want to please. You know, we try hard to please God. We, we work and we do all of these things. We show up at church. We check boxes. We do, we do everything that we can to please God. And I think what we're invited to see here is this. You're never going to please everybody. You're never going to please even God based on your own effort. But if you want to win, you've got to lose. You know, if you, if you want to gain everything, you have to be willing to give it up. And that's why we talk about something like repentance as being a grace. It's because it's when we come to God and say, look at it, I've got nothing. I, I've got nothing to offer to you. But God comes back and says, I have everything to offer to you because Jesus has gone all the way down to the depths in order that you might have life or 
move on in our outline, that you might have glory. Here, here is the really fascinating thing about this passage, and we've got to keep moving on here. But the glory of God is at the forefront. It's mentioned in a number of times. And, and there are a couple of things that we could say about glory as it is mentioned here. The first is this. It's tied up with the Trinity. Oftentimes when we hear about the Trinity, Trinity is kind of in the background. But here we see intertrinitarian relationships brought to the foreground of what Jesus is telling us. You know, Father, you and I had glory before the existence of the world. And, and so there is a, a tie-up of this glory with the Trinity. And it's so si significant that it is the Trinity. It's this tri-personed guys. Trinity is not, you know, it's, it's very complicated, but it, it's three persons uh, in one being, right? And so what's so important about that is, is that the glory existed between the three persons, so there was a sharing of that glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and there was a completion of that glory. You know, one of the things that we say about the nature of God is that He doesn't need anything beyond Himself. We call it His aseity. Uh, he, he's, he's perfectly sufficient in and of Himself. You know, the Trinity is perfectly sufficient. Now, What's amazing about that is what Jesus is saying here about the glory of God. He's saying that the glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to, you, who, to all whom you have given him. And then if you move down the chapter, uh, verses 22 to the end, the glory that you have given to me... I give to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me. Father, I desire, 24, that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. These know you because you have sent me. And I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Here's the, the short version of this. The short version of it is though God was completely sufficient and had the glory in and of themselves, the nature of the glory and the manifestation of the glory is that it is expansive. And that God invites people into that glory. Sometimes we get this idea that God made us in order to bring Him glory. That's false. That is not a correct way of thinking. God made us because His glory is such that it overflows and we are the product of that love glory. Now, does that bring glory to him? Sure, of course it does. But the end, you know, is not that he can get more glory. Sometimes we use that language, Lord, get glory. Well, he's got it all. He doesn't need any more. You know, I understand what people are saying, and I'm not being overly critical about that. But what we need to see is the beauty of the love of God that overflows into the creation 
And now we understand a little bit about the love of God that pursues a rebel group like you and like me. Do you want to know the heart of the Father? Come to some of these things that Jesus is saying about the glory and how he is sharing it with us. I mean, honestly, I, I think about these things and I know words just don't do justice to, to the truth and to what it, is, uh, what it is communicating. But I encourage you to sit with it for just a minute and you will see things like purpose and meaning for your life like you, you've never thought of before. You know, you, you will see things like power that we have. I mean, if the love of the Father that is in Jesus is in us, what are you lacking? You know, what are you striving for? I mean, you have everything that you could want. You have beyond that which you could ask or imagine. And I think that's what Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter 3. And this is what Jesus says ultimately is eternal life. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God, being brought into the essence of the Trinity, allowing that love, glory of the Father to overflow into our lives, both individually and collectively, this is eternal life. Eternal life here isn't speaking so much about the time as it is about the quality. You know, the, the, your life is eternal. Your life is full because it is wrapped up in knowing God. And as we know God, that is the fullness of life. I know a lot of you are, are striving for different things. I mean, we all do, right? Our hearts just naturally. But nothing will satisfy you like knowing God. Nothing will satisfy you like being his child and receiving his love, his grace, receiving the mercy that he has for you. Now, as we've said, the way up is the way down. You know, the way that we appropriate it, like Alex was experiencing, was acknowledging the blackness that is in our own life. And that's the starting point. I mean, if you want to know God, you acknowledge the blackness in your own life, and that will be the point where the light will begin to shine in, in an unbelievable way. You know, our work, one writer puts it this way, as, as we think about what it means to go out and share this, because there, there is an application there, right? You know, if we see that the Father's purpose, we see that the Trinity's purpose was to share their fellowship. You know, if anybody had a destination fellowship, it was the Trinity, right? That was enough. It was sufficient, but they shared it. You know, and I think we struggle with that, you know, as individuals, as a community. We, we want to know what's the destination, and then when we, wanna, when we get there, we want to say, okay, I've arrived you know, and our tendency is to hold that for itself, you know, whether it be goods and services of this world, whether it be our community and relationship, you know, even in the church, we, we struggle with that, right? But what, what the, the, the challenge of this is to say, we want to be Trinitarian. We want to share the beauty because love and glory is expansive. It invites others in. 
And, and it shares the goodness that we have. And of course, we do it imperfectly. And, and this is what one writer says. He says, our work and our witness in all their uh, variety are already adva in advance gathered up, healed, renewed, and perfected by being gathered into Jesus's holy response to the call of his Father, gathered into Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. Thus, the brokenness of our service, uh, the sin of our service, its unworthiness, uh, its unbelief, its many disobediences, all of its sordid self-promotion, its lethargy, its cowardice, its worldly compromises overcome. That is such good news because when I think about being Trinitarian with the love, glory that God has given me, it's very challenging, right? And I realize I do it imperfectly, but it's overcome. Mission becomes celebration, an act in which the sacrifice and exaltation of Jesus are proclaimed to the world uh, and proclaimed to the world uh, that he who comes to perfect our mission is also the one who is making all things new. And that is really, really good news. So here's the question. God is saying, I'm your father. And he's inviting you to live like that were true. Have you answered that call? Are you living, really living, like God is a father who loves you? And remember what Jesus said. You know, if earthly fathers know how to give good gifts, how much so, how much more so, your father in heaven does he delight to give you good gifts? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you've given us this good gift of this passage. And it's really challenged us. It takes us you know, to the very edges beyond what our, our minds and our hearts can comprehend. Pray that you would continue to lead us further up and farther in. We're grateful for your sacrifice, laying yourself out on the cross, becoming sin for us. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.